want to start off real quick by, um, by actually saying a, a quick prayer uh, just to get us ready, but also for Michael and Susan. We got word earlier this week that they're, so they've, they've left um, Southeast Asia and they're now uh, in Europe visiting some family, but Michael uh, is pretty sick and they're a little worried that it might be uh, something that's going to keep him uh, sick for a couple weeks. Uh, you know, he, being in, in Europe, he, he'll have some uh, access to, to good medical attention, but unfortunately, this is the first time he's been able to see his sister in a couple of years, and so I'd like to pray for, uh, just pray for Michael and Susan and Michael's recovery, and, uh, and as we uh, pr- uh, prepare to enter the, the word this morning. So if you join me in prayer. Um, Father God, it's a blessing to be here this morning. It's a blessing to be gathered as a church. And as a church, we just raise up Michael and Susan and are so thankful for the opportunity that we'll have to welcome them home here in a few weeks and uh, just enjoy their company and their presence and their family for uh, for a year as they come back and do some rest and recovery. Uh, But Lord, we lift up Michael specifically um, and just ask for your healing to be laid upon him. Um, Lord, there's all sorts of things that he could be sick with and they're uh, you know, there are varying degrees of severity there, and I know that he's got great doctors, and I just ask that you um, give them wisdom and, and uh, insight as they try to figure out what, uh, what the best course of recovery is going to be for Michael. And Lord, I also pray that you help him recover quickly, um, both so that his family can travel safely, but also so that he can enjoy time um, seeing his sister for the first time in a few years. And, and, uh, and yeah, Lord, just, just give the, the Cochrans that blessing um, of, of Michael's recovery, swift recovery, uh, and then prepare us, Lord, for, for welcoming him home here in a few weeks. Lord, as we turn our attention to the, to the last passage that we'll be studying, studying in First Peter, um, just open our hearts to the idea of humility, open our hearts to the idea of, of really seeing and savoring you and who you are and, and what that means for uh, who, we're, who we want to be and the way we want to live our lives. Um, just let, uh, yeah, just let your word penetrate our hearts with, with love and compassion and conviction and, and inspiration. Whatever we need this morning, Lord, we leave ourselves open to you and to the work of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be wrapping up our study in First Peter, taking a look at chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. And in these seven verses, Peter quickly rattles off a, a series of commands and instructions all relating to the overall theme of his letter, which is our need to remain faithful to Christ even in the midst of difficult times. Now, throughout this study, we've been encouraged to remember that as followers of Christ, we are part of God's family, citizens of his kingdom, and a people who have been saved by Jesus so that we may go into the world and proclaim the excellencies of God who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We've learned about respecting authority and about loving people who do not necessarily always love us, about building God-honoring relationships in our homes and in our church. We've seen how suffering can lead us to depend more on God and allow us unique opportunities to share the gospel with a world so desperately in need of the redemption and the reconciliation and renewal that can only come from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Last week, Pastor Steve showed us that we need to be willing to receive spiritual help from our Christian brothers and sisters who might be a little bit more mature in their faith than ourselves, and that we are not meant to try to figure out our our faith, this whole faith idea on our own. God is gracious to give us a community, to give us a church that we can lean into and learn from during both good and hard times. And because we're all here to help and to love and to serve one another, we need to treat one another well. In fact, the Apostle Peter says that all of us, every single follower of Christ, should clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And it's that command with its focus on humility that I want to take a closer look at today. Now, before we go any further, however, I want to let you you all in on a little secret. Uh, Preaching and teaching and even talking about humility directly is a little tricky 
and it feels a little weird. It seems counterintuitive to stand up in front of a bunch of people and say, y'all need to be more humble, and I will tell you exactly how and, and exactly why. In studying, and, and, and studying humility and preparing this sermon, it, it has itself been a very humbling experience. I am by no means a prideless person, but neither are you, so we're all in this together. I have been the guy who opens up the car hood and stares at the engine because even though I know very little about car repair, I want anyone who sees me to at least have the chance of being impressed by my mock mechanic skills. I have also been the person who cleans just enough space in his home so that the picture of my dog that I take and post on Instagram looks great and doesn't have any of the dirty dishes or unfolded laundry or unsorted stacks of mail that can usually be found in my living room on any given week. I struggle with humility, and I struggle with pride, and I need this message from 1 Peter just as much as anybody else here today. So again, we're all in this together. Today, we learn together, we seek Christ together, and we add to our understanding of how to remain faithful and be humble and cling to the grace and the holiness of our good and glorious God. We're not going to touch on everything about humility today. We're not going to be able to, to take in the entire idea, but we're going to try to focus in on uh, a few aspects that Peter brings out in chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. And I want to read that passage to start off this morning. Chapter 5, verses 5 through 11 of 1 Peter says, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility uh, toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Peter brings his letter to the Christians scattered in exile throughout the outer reaches of the Roman Empire to a close. And as he does so, he calls all of them, and and 2,000 years later, he calls all of us as well, to make the practice of humility a fundamental part of their everyday faith. Be humble toward others. Be humble before God and humble yourself. Three times in two verses, Peter commands and pleads that the followers of Christ pursue this this attitude, pursue, pursue this virtue of humility. Now, for anyone who has been a Christian for a while or has read very much of the Bible, Paul's admonition for humility probably doesn't come as too much of a surprise. The Old Testament is full of similar commands from God to his people, asking them, commanding them to be humble. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, God promises that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn away from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. In a passage that has inspired Christians for centuries to serve and protect and love those in need is Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And of course, Peter would have learned the, the value and the essential nature of humility from Christ himself, who repeatedly told his disciples that the meek would be lifted up and made strong, and that the last and the least would be the first in the kingdom of God. And that, as it says in Luke 14, all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled, 
and all of those who humble themselves will be exalted. So it's pretty clear that, that humility matters to God and is therefore essential to the life of a Christian. It is, or at least should be, one of those defining, Christian, one of those defining marks of Christian character, right up there with, with love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and, uh, and self-control. If you want to, you can tack humility right at the end of that list. If we want to be more like Christ, we need to grow in humility and learn and understand how to humble ourselves, which naturally leads us to a somewhat obvious and yet slightly tricky question to answer. What is humility? How might you describe or define it? Now, I asked a bunch of people this week to answer that question, including my mom. So just so you know, if you disagree with this, you disagree with Mama Crager, and that puts you on pretty thin ice. But, uh, but they all responded with some variation of the same idea. Humility is remembering that God is God and I am not. That God is God and I am not. And, and I love that because it's simple, it's easy to remember, but it's also packed with a great deal of truth to explore. God is God, meaning that he is the one that is all-powerful. He is the one that is all-knowing and limitless and perfect and abounding in love and worthy of glory and honor and praise. God is God and I am not, meaning I am not all-powerful. I am not all-knowing and I am not perfect. I have, I have extreme limitations and my love is often very fickle and conditional. And my worthiness for praise is really not worth exploring when, when compared to that of the Lord's. Part of humility is rem- remembering that I have a problem with sin and that God is the only one who can save me from the consequences. Being humble, keeps us, uh, or being humble helps us keep a good grip on the reality of our relationship with God, that he's in charge and we are not. But it also frees us to have a better, more Christ-like relationships with others. Humility leads us to seek the good in others and to see their value as fellow image bearers of God and increases our genuine desire to do what's best for them, even when it's not necessarily what's best for us. According to theologian and commentator Karen Jobes, true humility, as opposed to contrived or self-degrading humiliation, flows from recognizing one's complete dependence on God and is expressed by the acceptance of one's role and position in God's economy. With such humility, one is freed from the attempts to gain more power and prestige, and instead, humility expresses itself in the willingness to serve others beyond one's self-interest. Rather than being something that keeps us down or degrades us, biblical humility teaches us how to love God and love others the way that Jesus has loved us, selflessly, sacrificially, and compassionately. Perhaps no other passage in all of Scripture captures this idea better than Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage but rather made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every, name, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what is humility? 
Humility is remembering that God is God and that you are not, and embracing the freedom that that truth gives us to share our lives with others the way that Christ has shared his with us. And what might a life lived like that? What, like, what might a life of humility look like? It probably looks a whole lot like 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. In this passage, we, say, we see that Peter says that if we embrace the practice of humility, if we hold that right perspectives, per perspective and put it on every day like, like clothing for all the world to see and, and to wrap ourselves in it, four astounding, incredible, grace-filled things can and will happen. First, it says that if we are humble, then we will receive the blessing of God's favor and prevent our pride from making us God's enemy. In verse 5, Peter quotes Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, and he says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And I've, I've known that verse for a long time. It's one of the you know, handful of ones that can rattle off pretty easily. And it's a pretty basic concept, and it's easy to nod your head at and say, yes, I understand that. that, that that's great. But, but think about what it's saying for a moment. You and I can live in such a way that draws the opposition and the anger and the righteous wrath of an almighty God. There is nothing more catastrophic than having God draw a line in the sand and finding yourself choosing to be on the other side, the very, very wrong side. That's what pride does. When sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on him, then their pride has, has led them to be counted among God's enemies instead of being found among his beloved children. In scripture, you can find pride described as a sign of arrogance and rebellion and insubordination and the root of all sin and therefore the very root of human self-destruction. Proverbs 16, chapter 16, verse 5 goes as far to call the person who is prideful in heart an abomination to the Lord and promises that he or she will not go unpunished. We don't often think about pride or talk about pride that way, but the Bible does. And to be clear, the kind of pride we're talking about is not the kind that a parent experiences when, when, you, when your kid does well or succeeds at something. And it's not even necessarily the kind that, that you experience when you get recognition for, for hard work or a job well done. God does not have a problem with us experiencing success or achieving our goals or even enjoying the experience of, of achieving something. We get into trouble when we buy into the lie that we've done it all on our own. Canadian theologian Jenny Lynn de Klerk explains the nuance well when she says, having power or success in this world is not evil in itself. But letting one's heart be driven by dreams of an ideal life marked by the primacy of self is the opposite of excellence in the Christian life. The next time you think about being the best you, remember Christ's response to the question, who is the best? He said it's the person who humbles himself in Matthew chapter 18 verse 4. According to Christ, humility is the best way to live. Nothing good comes from being a prideful person. But so much wonderful grace and favor comes from being humble. And the Bible gives a stunning reason for why this is so. When, while pride draws us away from God and makes us enemies of God and draws God's, the attention of God's wrath, humility draws the loving attention of God. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, God says, These are the ones I will look at with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. In the Gospels, it is the humble, both the poor and the powerful, who draw the praise and admiration of Jesus. 
And while dying on the cross, it was not the man who demanded a display of Jesus' power who was promised salvation, but the man who knew himself to be a sinner, confessed it, and threw himself at the mercy of a dying God who he still believed somehow would be able to save him. And what was Christ's response? It was that mighty promise, today you will be with me in paradise. Humility opens the door to God's favor and grace by doing nothing more than helping us admit that we need him. So this week, I challenge you to consider what prideful attitudes you might have that you need to confess and how you might humbly praise God for the grace and the favor that he has shared with you. One of the ways that I've recently started doing this, I got this out of a book that I was reading as I was studying for this, uh, for, for this sermon this week. And, and one of the things that this author encouraged you to do is that the, at the end of every day, take some time to, to just pick a couple things that you know God should get the glory for, for from your day. And, and then give it to him. Tell, tell him that you're thankful for those things and give him the glory for those things. I've, I've taken up a practice of writing them down on a board that we have at our house so that I can see them and remember them and reflect on them and give God the glory for the things that he's done in my day. That might be something that works for you. It might not. You don't, you don't have to do that. But the important thing is that you should do something to cultivate humility and give glory to God in your daily life. Come up with some sort of strategy, some sort of intentional practice that draws you into thankfulness and draws you into reflecting what God's doing in your life. Be intentional about it. It's been a breath of fresh air to my faith, and I believe it can do the same for you. Second, if we are humble, then we will trust in God's strength and protection rather than our own. We will trust in God's strength and protection rather than our own. In verse 6, Peter uses a unique phrase telling his readers, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he will lift you up in due time. And that phrase, the mighty hand of God, is is an idea straight out of the Old Testament, especially from the book of Exodus, that refers to God's power unleashed in order to save his people. Now in the Old Testament, Israel was saved, uh, was freed from the bondage of, sl- of the bondage of slavery and oppression. And in the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus Christ saves you and me from the bondage of sin and death. Humility allows us to see and celebrate and savor the incredible display of God's strength and protection for us, rather than pridefully and feebly trying to accomplish salvation on our own. It also allows us to accept difficult circumstances as part of God's plan and happening within the bounds of his ever-present protection. The promise that God will lift you up in due time means that there will be times where we don't feel very lifted up. Times when, like Christ, we are mocked and hurt and humiliated. And in those moments, we must lean into God, not run away from him or doubt him or demand that, that he give us an explanation for what's going on, although sometimes he'll be good enough to do so. But during those times, we must, with the world watching to see how we're going to respond at our weakest, we must not boast in ourselves. We must not fight back for ourselves. But instead, in humility, we preach Christ crucified. We share the gospel. We take the same strategy that the Apostle Paul took in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, where he said, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with, the, with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that you might, your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. 
Our faith must rest on the strength and the protection and the power of God, not on our own. Humility, admitting that God is God and I am not, helps us trust the Lord and his timing for the things that we need. The third thing that this passage shows us is that humility graciously frees you to truly believe that God cares for you. 1 Peter 5.7 is a verse that has bought both pain and grace to my life. Humility is the key to having this verse be a blessing, and pride is the trap that turns it into a curse. About a year and a half ago, I began to develop uh, extremely severe anxiety. And looking back now, I can probably tell that I've, I've had anxiety for most of my life, but for whatever reason, the coping mechanisms that I developed uh, dealt with it for a long time until all of a sudden uh, it stopped. They, they stopped working. And uh, as my anxiety got the better of me, I started feeling like everything in my life, everything I was doing in my life was going wrong. And, and I couldn't figure out a way to, to stop it all. And I felt like all of this, all of this stuff that I was experiencing, all this feeling of wrongness and all this feeling that I wasn't good enough was all my fault. I felt like my role as a pastor was something that I was unworthy of, that my confidence as a husband was shattered into pieces, and that my gifts for for preaching and teaching and reaching out to people had all left me. I was scared, and I didn't understand what was going on, and I didn't want to tell anybody. And if I'm being honest, I wanted to prove to God and prove to myself that I could overcome this sort of a trial all on my own. And that was pride. My, my, anxi- my anxiety wasn't pride. It was exacerbated by pride. It, was, it would turn that, that, that anxiety into a disaster. But my pride to latch on and try to do it all on my own was part of the root problem that I was experiencing. And as I withdrew further and further into myself and, and pushed more and more people away, that verse, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, felt more like a taunt than a promise. I, I, I didn't read it like an invitation or a gift. I read it like a condemnation. If you're really a good Christian, you'll just give this all to God and everything will be great. And I believed that for about a year. And I couldn't stop myself from believing that. One of the things about anxiety when it really gets going is, is you buy into the lies and you really start believing all these things that aren't true. And you, can't, you, you can tell objectively this is true and this is not. And for some reason you just keep running to the thing that's not true and, and you can't stop yourself. And if you struggle in a similar way, I want, I want you to hear this today from, from this pulpit and from your church. Your anxiety does not define you. Your depression does not define you. Your struggle with these things does not define you. And Jesus Christ bought with his own blood the eternal right to define who you are. And he says you are more than the things that break you down. He looks at you, even in your most painful and wretched moments, and says, I love this one. This one is mine. We all get anxious, and we all have worries and concerns that creep into our hearts and chip away at our confidence and our faith. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you is meant to be a gracious and loving promise that lifts you up in those moments of doubt and pain. However, in order for that to happen, you have to focus not on the command But on the promise, God cares for you. God cares for you. Let that sink sink in for a minute. Have you really thought about that, that, that promise, that phrase? God cares for you. Think about who God is. The the creator and the sustainer of all life, of the entire universe, cares about you. He loves you. He makes sacrifices for you, protects you, fights for you, wants to have a personal relationship with you. God cares for you. 
And this is amazing because cast all, it's amazing because that truth cast all your anxiety on him. That doesn't mean that your anxiety is just going to magically go away. But the promise here is that in that anxiety, in those moments, you are never alone. And there's never more than God can step in and help you with. God understands what you're going through and he loves you even through that struggle and he and and to trust him with your con- concerns completely doesn't mean that that it's all just going to wash away but he'll be there with you in that moment you're never alone in your anxiety the power of this verse is not in the command for you to do something but it's in the promise that God has already done something on your behalf and continues to do things for you because God cares for you i still struggle with anxiety but by the grace of God, I am much better at dealing with it than I used to be. I needed, to get, getting to that point took a long time. I needed this church. I needed my incredibly patient wife. I needed my family. I needed a, a direct intervention from God. And to be honest, I needed to accept the reality that I needed some, some medical help. And so I, I got on some medication that has helped wonderfully. It's, it's a blessing and a miracle what, uh, what certain um, anxiety meds ha- have done for me. And I believe that they're a part of how God cares for me. And I say all this because I want to normalize a little bit our struggle with, with anxiety and our struggle with doubt and, and, and things that keep us down. You are not a bad Christian if you worry. God anticipated our tendency to stress and our desire to take over because we foolishly, foolishly want to believe we've got it all under control. His response to this error is not anger. It is and has always been and will forever be the willingness to forgive us and to love us. God cares for you. Let your focus rest on that promise, and I believe that the command to cast all your anxiety on him will become more of the gracious gift that it's meant to be. The fourth thing that we see in this passage is that humility keeps us ready to resist the devil. Now, an entire sermon could be dedicated to verses 8 and 9, and so I'll ask for your forgiveness and understanding and only scratching the surface of these two verses. But the bottom line is this. The devil is real. And he really is our enemy, and he's always looking for a way to crush our faith. Be alert and of sober mind basically means wake up, pay attention, maintain a sort of spiritual sobriety, and be at a state of readiness because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Faith is not a passive thing. Believing that God is God and I am not is going to require some discipline from you because deep down inside, we still struggle with a twisted wish that we could say God is God and I am that God. Satan has always pounced and prayed on that desire. The good news is that Satan is not all-powerful. He's been defeated, his power and influence are limited, and they cannot compare or compete with Jesus' victory over death achieved through the cross and the resurrection. The devil can be resisted because Jesus is better. Satan has schemes, but Jesus has salvation. Satan may have regency on earth, but Jesus has absolute sovereignty. In Christ, we find the strength to resist the devil. Now, Peter doesn't tell us how to resist in this passage, but the promise that Satan can be resisted leads us to recall how that's been done in other places in Scripture. Jesus in the desert using scripture uh, in order to, as a shield in order to resist temptation. James, the brother of Jesus, imploring his readers to, to draw near to God so that the devil will have no choice but to flee from his presence. 
Paul's promise that if we commit ourselves to being excellent at what is good and being innocent of evil, then the God of peace will crush Satan beneath our feet. Romans 16, 19 through 20. And if you grew up in a youth group, huh, would usually be the, the phrase that comes after that. All of these begin with and are strengthened by our commitment to humility, our need to, to confess that we need God in everything that he has to offer in our fight and our resistance to the devil. Admit that you cannot resist the devil on your own, and through prayer and scripture and devotion and confession and repentance, run into the presence of the one, Jesus Christ, who has already resisted and defeated Satan on your behalf. Resistance is not found in our ability, but in Christ's victory. Peter caps off his plea to the followers of Christ to practice humility with one last reminder that this is all worth it because the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered for a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Humility leads us and prepares us for an eternity of rest and revelry in the glorious presence of the God of all grace. Right now, we just get glimpses of that glory and small, overwhelming flashes when we take in God's greatness and our smallness. But one day, we will indeed take it all in, and instead of being undone, we will be restored and made strong and firm and steadfast forever. God is God, and I am not, and I am extremely grateful that that is true. This week, I encourage you all, when, when, you, when you think about humility, to consider humility, remember that receiving God's blessing, receiving the blessing of God's favor and, and confessing our pride leads us to be able to, to, to not stray from his presence, but be invited in to be close to him. And humility, trust in God's strength and protection rather than your own. No matter what struggles or anxieties you may face, allow humility to free you up and to truly to believe that God cares for you. And in humility, equip yourself so that you can resist the devil. As you think about these this week, probably just pick one or maybe two. If you're really feeling great about yourself, maybe pick all four, but that's probably going to be pretty tough. Uh, but if one of these resonates with you, uh, really take the time this week to dive into it, to, to, to dwell in it. Preparing for this sermon was, was an extremely um, humbling and, and, and it drew me a lot closer to God investigating this idea, investigating this virtue of humility. So I'd, I'd encourage you this week, throw yourself into one or two of these and really see what God might have for you. And may the God of all grace who has called you in, into his eternal glory in Christ restore you now and assure you of the greater and eternal restoration that will be given to you at the return of our Savior, Jesus. Would you all pray with me? Father God, we, we humbly raise our voices to you, and, and, and we know, Lord, and we're thankful that the promises that you gave us of, of being in your favor and your grace and your care um, are there for us even as we humble ourselves, Lord. And we know we don't do this perfectly. We know that we need your grace and your love as we, uh, as we pursue this. And so we ask, Lord, um, yeah, that just this morning you draw our hearts to conviction. Where we need conviction, you draw our hearts uh, to praise and, and, and to humbly lift up glory to you, Lord, for what you're doing in our lives. Um, whatever, whatever we most need to hear, Jesus, just please soften our hearts toward that, even this morning as we've listened, but as we go forward here today. I, I would pray for everyone um, to really let the, the words of First Peter be something that is a gift and, and not a burden and something that leads them into a deeper, richer relationship with you. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. <clears throat>